Thanks for tuning in to the Survival to Thrival podcast, based on the book series with the same name. I'm Helen Croydon, and I'm the interviewer of the biggest stars of the show, the two co-authors, Tehi Norm and Bob Tinker. Tehi and Bob are a duo of investor and entrepreneur. They have a long history of working together and have written two books together, aimed at founders and entrepreneurs striving to build enterprise startups. This podcast is based on the themes, advice and real world stories from their book series, Survival to Thrival. If you enjoyed this, please like it, subscribe or share it with your network. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Survival to Thrival podcast. Today, we're focusing on building a company as a distributed team. Building a startup is hard. Building a startup while distributed is even harder. So let's talk about what's different. Me, Tehi and Bob are joined by a special guest this episode, the head of sales from Honeycomb, Chad Maiko. Chad was Chief Revenue Officer at GitLab, which was built from the beginning as a fully distributed team, and is now helping transition Honeycomb to become a distributed company. So this is really topical to startups now. How does it affect a startup, the management and productivity of a team? Chad, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. What are the biggest things that you found about building a company while distributed? Um, the biggest thing I see that I've uh, changed when you're going distributed is uh, connectivity, the relationship building um, of your team, of the team in general, uh, the communication, collaboration um, that happens when you're uh, typically in person. Uh, and then the hiring, onboarding uh, of individuals uh, becomes very different. And finally, just the, the transparency um, of, of what's going on. You don't use your eyes to see people working. You have to rely on uh, documents and and uh, really trust on the results, not how people are doing it. Right. And Tehi and Bob, I want to bring you two in here. Does this resonate with um, the new way that you're working now as as newcomers to distributed working? Yeah. So the thing that you know, if you think about what a man, you know, what a leader does in a company when they're building a startup, like there's all these sort of things that we just do. Right. We hire people. We walk around and talk to people. We get people together to talk about problems. We work on decisions. We, you know, uh, resolve conflict. Uh, you build culture, like all these things. And, you know, the thing I've seen uh, that I've struggled with is that a lot of these things just change when you go remote and sort of the muscles that we've all built sort of out of habit, you know, at least for me over the last 20 years are now having to get rewired and sort of rethink how we do that as part of uh, building a remote team. There's sort of a before and after for me that I think is uh, uh, been particularly interesting. And uh, Tehi, you know, I, I don't know if you have any sort of thoughts on what you've seen, because you actually work with a large number of companies as well. Well, I'm personally uh, experiencing uh, how we go from working closely together in an office to working in a distributed manner. And um, to be honest, uh, it's been a learning experience for me just personally and realizing the, how I need to change, you know, in terms of how I communicate. And one thing that I had the uh, privilege of talking to Chad earlier is uh, realizing the importance of documentation. And so adding that has had a big impact on how I've been able to work effectively in a remote basis. So Chad, when you're working at GitLab and they were one of the first big companies to be fully remote, how did you do all the decision-making? Can you describe how that played out? Definitely. Uh, the 
the thing at GitLab is we never looked at specific meetings uh, to come to consensus and have a decision-making process. It was all asynchronous. And so the brainstorming, uh, the thought process would all happen in whatever it is, Google Docs, a Quip Doc, and a GitLab specifically was in our issue tracker. And so if you had an opinion and everybody in the world, not just the company, all our contributors had an opinion, we wanted to put it on there. And so we used the time asynchronously to hear people's opinions and to then change our minds or to ask questions and dig down into it. Uh, and ultimately it was who's going to be the person who wants to, uh, who's gonna champion this, this, this decision. Now, ultimately the CEO makes a decision, but who's the champ that's gonna take there, who to use the data to say, here's the problem, here's what we're gonna do. Um, that was very effective for us because A, we got multiple people's opinions on the problem on the possible solution, aim, able to formulate, okay, what's our first iteration of this? So a GitLab, which actually supports my own belief is there's nothing around, we don't focus on perfection. We don't wanna make things like absolutely perfect here. It's all iterations. And so we make the decision process based on what's the first problem we wanna solve and then tackle the second one once it becomes a, uh, known to us. That's fascinating, Chad. So there is a, you know, classically, you know, the way, you know, in my operating history, you make a decision as a team is you'd get everybody together and call a meeting. And what I'm hearing from you is that that was actually done asynchronously. Was that done asynchronously all the time or would there still be times when you'd call a meeting to make a decision? Like love to hear how those two things sort of balanced out. So most of the time it was done asynchronously, not all the time. So there are definitely, I mean, bigger, I'll call it business decisions those were done like on executive team call. We'd come with our data, we'd come with our opinions. We may have disagreement, but are we all on board with this? Are we all aligned on moving this direction? And that did occur with some of the bigger discussions we had on a business level, less tactical, but more strategic. Chad, you mentioned at GitLab, you had these uh, executive team calls. Can you describe a bit more about like how often, you know, who was on it and so, and how it was done? Yeah, the, we had a weekly executive team call that were all the reports to the CEO. So whoever reported to CEO was on that call. There was always a, uh, we use Google, Google Docs at GitLab. There was always this standard agenda. You would put whatever you want to talk about on there. So this wasn't CEO run. It was the entire group run, what is important for us to talk about. We would always put in there links um, to where people can go read about documentation, uh, about the topic, and come with opinions. Everybody was expected to put their questions down beforehand or to document as we're having a discussion. That was a big learning moment for me at GitLab is I don't normally talk and type at the same time. And so we had to get this, train ourselves to say, okay, I just said this, let's record, record this meeting, document it um, so we don't lose it over time. And it was also um, just a running, a running agenda over time. So we can look back in three months and say, hey, here's the discussion. We also had a quarterly offsite. So the, the ongoing communication, the more formal things were like every single week. Of course, we had our Slack, Slack channels or whatever we were using there. But then we quarterly made um, uh, all efforts to get all executives in one place. Now, if you think about this, we had an executive that was in uh, the Netherlands. We had an executive that was in uh, the Ukraine. Uh, executives all over the world. So flying them in here was was time. Ah, so know. actually, let me let me interrupt you for a sec, Chad. So your offsites were actually physical. So you guys made the decision to say, hey, look, everything's remote except for when we do offsites. 
we actually do get people together. Yes, because we recognize that there's still that need of having that like face-to-face connection, building the relationships that are very hard, if not impossible, by doing on a video conference. It must have been very strange when you left GitLab and went to Honeycomb and which and then went back to a normal working environment. Did you notice that things didn't work as well uh, in a team that were working together that had worked better when you were fully distributed? Yeah. So use the word normal, like normal to me is being distributed now. <laughs> so so going into this this office environment um, is what is different for me. And when I started Honeycomb, it was actually coincidentally their first week of doing a work from home. So they've already before I joined was putting some their muscles in, into practice of, of, hey, once a quarter, we're going to have everybody work from home to see how it is. It just happened to be my first week. And the second week was COVID shelter in place. So everybody was forced to be distributed at that at that time. Um, one thing I was actually quite impressed with when I came to Honeycomb is their documentation. I mean, they have already started a lot of the things that um, I found necessary at GitLab is just documentation. Yes, they had the tools, they used Zoom, so they used Slack, so they had a lot of tools, but having the documentation, the onboarding docs, you name it, on on uh, uh, accessible to anyone, anyone and anywhere in the world, that was a huge step forward. You know, Chad, you've mentioned documentation several times. Maybe for the audience, uh, you can share with them the, the power of uh of good documentation and what that means to the company, you know, especially from your good lab experience. Yeah. Keyword there is good documentation. Too much documentation. Can't find it. Yeah. My experience uh, learned from Sid, the, the CEO founder at GitLab was um, if you have a question, document it and get the answer because someone else in the company at some point in time is going to have the same question. So it's a, it's a productivity, it's efficiency thing. Uh, which is great, and it also helps people learn. So when you're asking questions, and instead of telling somebody where where to what the answer is, here this is how you go find it. This is who you talk to. So that right there built relationships because now I'm going to people that can help give me the answer that I've never have talked to before, or may not talk because they're outside of my department. And the key with the good documentation is have some organization, have 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 some guides on how you're documenting stuff. People know, at least in the development world, there's technical documentation. And we do a really good job of like breaking things down and here's how you get started and implementation and problem solving, troubleshooting. It's that same mentality when you're talking about people is, how do I frame stuff? Here's my onboarding. Here's my personal, my personal professional development stuff. Here's at GitLab, the entire handbook, my, my entire sales playbook was public. Now that's like, forbidden for a lot of companies to think about, oh, here's the playbook. So if you're a customer, you know exactly what sales stages we're going through. You know what type of questions we're going to ask. That helps get everybody on the same page, but also helps people join the conversation and have an opinion. Say, hey, I really think this would work. One of the things, this you know, rewind back to like 2015, 16, you know, as Mobile Iron was scaling, we worked hard to try and get documentation down. And, you know, we had a lot of centralized storage. We had wikis. And I think one of the things we struggled with was when documenting things, how to, how to do it in such a way that it ends up being useful over time and it doesn't just get bloated. Because, like, one of the jokes was it's on the wiki. You know, it just sort of became this giant pile of documentation that because everything was written down, it eventually sort of got to the point where uh, I'm not sure it actually helped us achieve what we wanted to achieve. So do you have any advice 
and sort of thoughts for sort of how to balance that so it actually doesn't become just a giant pile of written stuff that's hard to use? Great question. What I learned at GitLab was don't just say it's over there. Don't say it's on the wiki. Don't say it's on the handbook. Is actually provide them a link. So it helps you understand, is it easy to find? Where did I think it was? Is it still there? So it's almost like leading the horse to water. I'm going to take them to the trough. Here it is. Now, they might have to go to the page and find it. Um, eventually, as companies grow, um, need, just like there should be an owner of technical documentation, there needs to be an owner of just the internal processes and the documentation. Um, I kind of think about the old school, you have the library of the librarian, you walk in the library, it's like, oh my gosh, where's these books? You go ask the librarian, well, it's down here, it's in this section, it's on the third shelf, whatever it is. Huh. It's almost what you need there to to make sure that you don't get to the problem you just said, which is, I don't know where it's at, it's on the wiki, where's that at? That's interesting. I, that's an interesting point, because I think the challenge we had going through trying to document everything is it was very organic. And there was not, there was a, sort of on purpose, not a centralized owner. So what I'm hearing from you is that there, you need to have sort of some centralized owners of the documentation just to make sure it's sort of staying current and being used and being structured or like, how did that actually work? Yeah, I'd say is there's a balance here. So when you want everybody to contribute, um, that's, that, that's the goal of, of making it transparent. And when everybody can contribute, so GitLab, again, we would make our changes, we would put our, our merge request in there to say, hey, I want to add this or delete this or whatever in there. And then some manager would be able to accept that merge request. When you have 20, 50, 100, 1,000 people making changes, it can become very chaotic. And again, there's a process of kind of uh, approvals that should probably happen. Great. You made this suggestion. Who's going to approve where it actually goes? So whether or not you have a person or two that's that kind of librarian out there, it's more about whoever's approving, putting that information in, whatever that approval process is, they should hold that responsibility to say, okay, is this the right place? Is it current? Everybody, I truly believe everybody should have the ability and should always contribute to internal documentation because everybody has their own perspective, their own experience. In terms of like building the playbook and building the teamwork and building the processes and like, how did you talk about building a sales team completely remotely? Because I know there's going to be a lot of founders and early stage folks out there that are right now, like trying to figure out how to build a sales team. Yeah, I mean, the when you think about a playbook, the way I think about a playbook is it's a guide. Um, it's a guide in what are the repeatable behaviors, actions that lead to success. It is not, it's a balance of art and science. It doesn't mean, hey, everybody do this and you'll be successful. Those are robots. Um, so when you deal with the playbook, it's the things that we as a business and how we want to operate, like what are our sales stages or how do we do things? That's a business thing. And there's certain requirements that every business has on on deal preparation, deal documentation, whatever it, whatever it may be. But I go back to it's kind of a guide and always sharing, hey, here's what I as the, the manager or your manager is going to be looking at. So I think it's very important for an individual to know what their manager is looking at for that person. And so that's the documentation piece. And whether you're using like a Salesforce dashboard, it doesn't matter. It's here. Here's what we're, we're tracking here. The, the distributed piece is, I mean, first and foremost, you have to have trust in the individual that they have the same goals as you, meaning 
I want to go kick butt. I want to crush my sales numbers. You have to have trust that they're doing their job. So it's less about punching in the clock, heavy work, six, eight, 12, 10 hours. Are you getting the results that are expected of you? And, and ideally, are they getting the results that they want to get? Hopefully their results or their goals are much greater than, than the managers or the companies um, out there. Uh, frankly, it was just kind of dumb luck as you know, we made the transition to uh, sort of a post-COVID isolation world. The, um, it's interesting, wiring in remote teamwork from the very beginning as part of the culture actually turned out to be kind of a big deal. You know, contrast that with sort of mobile iron from the very beginning, the first 50 people were kind of all together. So as we added people remotely, they ended up kind of sometimes feeling like second class citizens. And I think building a company so that the folks that are remote don't feel like second class citizens to the ones that are in headquarters was something we struggled with at Mobile Iron. Whereas at uh, this other company, Bedrock, that was not an issue because we built the company from the very beginning to be remote. And I think just having that culture where there's sort of an expectation that everybody's remote, just that actually was kind of a big deal. Um, the second part of that was, and it matches uh, something Chad said, which is that even if everybody's remote, uh, you, know, you have lots of communications, lots of tools, things like that, that we still needed to get people together physically. And then uh, building culture. Um, and Chad, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Like, you know, they're sort of fostering teamwork, which is sort of getting people to work together and be productive and things like that. But then there's like the very profound part of building a company culture. There's explicit things you can do to build company culture. There's a lot of watching that people do and observing people do to figure out the company culture. And I'd love to hear sort of based on your experience at sort of GitLab and now at Honeycomb, like, could you get specific about some things about you know, building culture? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so building culture to me is defined by living your company values. And so you need to have your values publicly stated. Um, and then all of the actions you are doing on a day-to-day -day basis need to be living those values. And you need to be able as a company from the, the most junior person to the CEO founder to be able to call out when you believe values are not being followed through on an everyday basis. At the same time is looking for those opportunities as frequently as possible. I'm not saying daily or all the time because then it becomes not maybe as important, but calling out when you see somebody living those values and having some type of mechanism, having some type of process where periodically you're calling out somebody who is living values. It used to be the old world like uh, ABCD, above the call of duty or woot, working out of title. But look at the values and say, hey, here's a person. I saw Helen live in the company value of whatever, being kind because of this incident here. And so you're publicly recognizing and praising that person, but you're also publicly reiterating and reinforcing living the values here. So you have to be very open to challenging people when you don't think values are being led. If culture is being managed, and that's a strong word here, but it's being managed and enforced by executives, then it's really not a culture. It has to be living day to day. The executives can look at and say, okay, is are we as a company living culture? So at GitLab, I mean, going from 100 to 500, and I can't even imagine what it is now at 1,500 employees distributed, 
and you're bringing on that many new people, I know that's one of the biggest questions they, they have asked themselves and probably any company is how do we keep living our culture when we're doubling every single year? And again, you're, you're, you are expecting, I don't want to say the word hoping, but you're expecting every single person that has been employed at that company to be stewards of that culture. Tehi, do you have um, of any of the startups that you've worked with talked about how they're fostering culture? Um, they're doing what, as uh, uh, Chad said, that it's really important to be very clear about your culture. Um, I, I think uh, working distributed forces companies to be more clear about what they believe in and what they do. That uh, uh, when you meet in person, it's easy to sort of leave with the impression everyone knows what to do and we've agreed on everything. But uh, when you're working distributed, um, you have less of that uh, uh, sort of false impression. Um, but I want to go back, Chad, to the beginning. You mentioned there were like, you know, four major themes and two of them were like onboarding and uh, transparency. Um, onboarding obviously, you, you know, relates to these new employees and transparency, how you deal with them. Maybe you can give people a, a, a few more comments on those two topics. Yeah. When you think about um, the onboarding process, I mean, uh, gone are the days that you bring everybody into your headquarters. They sit down for a big training session and rah, rah, rah. And here you go. And it's a day or five days and go out and fly out of the nest and try to survive. Um, in this case, also try to thrive um, out there. So onboarding, it's, and it comes with the transparency pieces, is documenting what you, so there's a company onboarding, then for me, there's a sales onboarding. Here is what I believe you need to do to build a foundation to be successful. It's self-paced, we guide it. I'll put guides in there in terms of what I expect in week one, week four, week 12, up to three months out there. And a lot of that is also pipeline building or closing business. So it's not so much just the revenue number, but again, what is expected to, to build the foundation for them to be successful. And it's self-paced, but doesn't mean that you as a person, the individual contributor, the manager kind of walk away. It's up to us uh, as a team, um, up to the manager to check in and say, okay, this time we're going to see how you're doing. So it's almost like that self-evaluation. Um, you're sharing successes as a group. I've always tried um, to bring on at least two, if not three people at the same time. It's not always possible, but it's nice when you have a, 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 a teammate or, or, or two that you're kind of in this journey together that you can work off. We were very fortunate to hire two new reps at Honeycomb at the same time. So that was great. And you get to see how they're doing. Now it's not competitive in a negative way. Hopefully it's competitive in a positive way. But if you're seeing how people are progressing and you get feedback and when it's and back on the transparency pieces, I make it really clear to everybody that um, joins the company or my team is make this document better when you're done with it. What are you gonna contribute um, next to make it even better because there's no way what I put down is near near perfect or great. I love that. This idea of sort of the co-creation and evolution of sort of these documents and, you know, these tools and this idea that you're not just a passive consumer of these documents, but that, you know, your job is to make it better. I love that as sort of a theme in a culture. And I think that's 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 a sort of interesting takeaway for me here that, you know, building the culture around documentation is not just writing it down, but that everybody's job is to, as they interact with it, their job is to make it a little bit better every time. 
Hey, Chad, sort of a, a follow-up question to that. Like, you know, in terms of onboarding, I get how, and I think it's probably clear to the audience out there that you're the person leading sales. So you're probably driving sort of the sales onboarding and, you know, the expectations and the content that's part of the sales onboarding. For the company onboarding, who owns that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It also depends on the, the the size of the company. So if you're fortunate enough to have a, a, well, formerly, I guess, known as HR, but a people or a culture department. So GitLab had a like a, a chief culture, chief people officer. Um, they they own that piece of it. At, at Honeycomb, we're not that big yet. So we have like a office manager and HR and an operations side that's taken the responsibility on of, great, let's make through make sure we put this checklist together, together, we send out the swag or everything you do when there was in person, you come to your desk and you're like, oh, here's my a bottle of champagne or my coffee mug and my shirt and my sweatshirt. Now that has to be shipped out to them. And so um, somebody in the company, and like I said, for us, it's kind of the office manager, HR person is in charge of, of, of doing this. And as you grow on the operational side is making sure you have somebody that's focused on the people, the culture side of the business, um, always looking to to make sure you're always improving there. But their job is not to be the culture police. It's like I said before, everybody's a steward of their own culture. They're just making sure, I think about it just efficiencies and process. How do we make sure everybody who joins a company feels like they're the most special person in the world? That's when it starts day one, when they're actually before that, when they're going to the interview process, that whole thing has to be lived every single day. So... One of the memes or truisms that I heard a lot when uh, I was learning how to lead and build a company was a big part of management and leadership is walking around. Like it even has a term, right? Like management leadership by walking around. And when a company is built completely remotely, just kind of tactically, like how's that happen? Like, how do you have those random interactions with the two engineers just to ask them about what's going on or that go stand in the customer service pod and just sort of listen to what customers are talking about or struggling with? The one thing I always that I, I hear about, and again, I work for startups that when they bring on executive, they want the presence of that executive round. And I, and I get it. And so there's that presence piece, but then it's the relationship piece. So those are two things I heard from your question there. And so when you have that walking around and leading by the walking around, the presence you have, the way I've tried to make it work distributedly is being present virtually. So what does that mean? So it's being a participant in certain Slack channels. Not everything's a sales Slack channel or the customer success Slack channel. There's general, there's miscellaneous, there's you name it out there. Um, every company should or probably has a, a crazy amount of different Slack channels. And it's just being aware of the conversation. It's being aware of the hallway conversations, being aware of the water coolers uh, conversation. And if you want to join in, join in. Um, and but the other piece of it is the relationship building. And honestly, that's that has to be just uh, practice and, and, and has to be thought of and making those times, whether it's the remote coffee times. And if your organization or company wants to put kind of a remote coffee, whiskey, um, uh, tea type of uh, environment together, um, that's great for maybe a little uh, like three to five people. 
But again, if you're trying to build relationships, I mean, as a person, we need to take it on ourselves, especially a leader to say, okay, I haven't talked to this person in a while. I want to put a little time on the calendar, 15 minutes to do a Zoom and just chat with them or invite a couple people. Um, I know at Return Path, uh, even before GitLab, um, our CEO, as we grew from, again, 20 to several hundred, he would have, when we in the small in the early days, one-on-one conversations with everybody. Well, eventually that just became can't be it's not feasible so then in one to ten then one to fifty but he always made always made the time to sit down when he went to one of our offices to have a conversation and it might have been a bigger conversation but it's kind of like an ama ask me anything Mm -hmm. with them so those are things you got to think about is who do you need to have who should you have that one-on-one conversation how can you have a one to few or a one to many depending on kind of um i think as uh, as a as you become higher up in the organization especially ceo that's the biggest challenge you're going to have is how do I have those relationships I used to have when we were 20 people? Now we're 100, now we're 500. And it may change. And yes, their inner circle will still be there and they'll have those one-on-one conversations, but they need to make sure that second second band of the circle, third band, whatever it is, they're still making the time to have that interaction with individuals. And whether you're a VP or a director, again, however large a company is, you still need to do that. Um, when you can and just be, like I say, present virtually. Well, Chad, thanks so much for all those insights. It's absolutely fascinating. So can you just sum up before you go in one sentence, what are the three most important things for a fully distributed team to be doing? Be thoughtful and make it part of your everyday to stay connected and build relationships with people. Uh, Don't let the excuse of distributed be an excuse. Find the positive in it. The communication and collaboration, I believe, actually will become better. It'll become more apparent in a distributed environment if you do things to encourage the communication and collaboration and not think about, oh, we have to have a meeting. So working more asynchronously. And the third is around the documentation is encourage yourself, encourage the company, encourage each of the individuals to continue to document. Don't worry about, is it perfect? Did you say the right thing is in the right place? Get it documented and then figure out how you can optimize it even better as you grow and let the company, let the individuals help guide you on how it makes it easier, more productive, more efficient, more effective. Brilliant advice. Chad Malko, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Survival to Thrival podcast with me, Helen Croydon, and co-authors Tehi Nam and Bob Tinker. This podcast is aimed at enterprise startup leaders. If there's someone you know who would find this podcast useful, please share it with them, subscribe, or leave a review. That's how others find us. Survival to Thrival.